Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we ask for, um, well, Lord, frankly, we ask for an outpouring of your spirit. We believe that if we're going to comprehend and benefit from your word this morning, that it's going to take more than our intellectual ability. It's certainly going to take more than any ability I have to explain this. It's going to take a work of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, now we invite, we anticipate, we believe, we want to receive uh, something from your spirit here this morning. Speak to us, Lord, as we give us give you our attention. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to Exodus chapter 4 this morning, I need to preface uh, my remarks just by making a few quick points. First of all, remember that as we begin Exodus chapter 4, a very important principle. The principle is simply this. That what God does for us is the core of Christianity. You see, this morning I'm going to be talking a lot about what we do for God and how we respond to God's call. And that's important. But please don't forget that what God does for us is the core of Christianity. What we do for God is important, but it's entirely secondary. No, what we do for him is in response to what he's already done for us. I mean, I could say this verse and you could probably fulfill it. We love him because he first loved us. You see, what God does for us is primary and at the core. What we do for him is important, but it's secondary. So I don't want anybody to miss that because this morning I'm going to be emphasizing the secondary part of that. If I only had one message to ever preach to you, I would preach to you on what Jesus Christ has done for us on the great work of the cross. And I'd make that the theme of the whole thing. Fortunately, I have more than one message to preach with you. And so I can talk about this this morning and focus on God's call and commission. That's number one. Number two, I believe very strongly, and I hope you do too, that God has a plan and a purpose for each individual life. He has a call for you to fulfill. He has a race for you to run and a purpose for you to live out. Finding that call Fulfilling that call is important. You running your race before God, that's important. And not everybody does it. So we talk more about that this morning. Secondly, or thirdly, I should say, I just want to draw your mind back to where we left off in Exodus chapter 3. There is Moses, an 80-year-old man who spent the first 40 years of his life being educated and rising up to prominence there in one of the great empires of the world at that time, ancient Egypt. There's uh, uh, Moses who spent those 40 years first in Egypt, then 40 years tending sheep. Now he's out in the desert on the slopes of Mount Sinai having a dramatic encounter with God in front of a burning bush that burns but is not consumed, yet God speaks to him from the midst of it. And as Moses is hearing from God and hearing God say, declare who he is and what he wants to do, God introduced Moses last week to the idea that God wanted to use him as the deliverer for his people. Now, Moses is going to talk to God about that calling, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice, Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Was this dramatic? Moses had a legitimate encounter with God right there on the slopes of Mount Sinai. In the midst there of the burning bush, God spoke out to him. 
And in that real, genuine encounter with God, God told Moses there's something he wanted him to do, a race to run, a call to fulfill. And he said, Moses, don't worry about it. He said this back in chapter 3, verse 18, God said to Moses, they will heed your voice. And now Moses says, did you catch it? But what if they don't? (laughs) Isn't that strange? God says, this is what's going to happen. And we answer back to him, yeah, but what if it doesn't? That is so human. It's so like us. Moses asked the question, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. You see, he's basically asking God, but God, what if you're wrong? Matter of fact, just that one word tells us a lot, doesn't it? That single word, but, communicates uncertainty, doubt. Moses was unsure of himself. But friends, that didn't mean that he wasn't truly called. God often calls and uses people who are unsure and people who simply need to rise to the occasion and have faith given to them as a gift from God. And I suppose with that right there, I'm speaking to some people who that's exactly where you're at. You know, I consider as I'm speaking to you here this morning that there's probably many of you here this morning and and maybe a few of that many. There's some of you here. You have no clue what God wants to do with your life You have no sense of calling, no sense of purpose, and you've just never really thought of it. Well, let let me tell you, I I believe that God wants to stir that up inside of you and get you thinking about it. There's probably some other people here. You believe that God does have a call, God does have a purpose for your life, but you doubt whether or not it could ever really be fulfilled. You're in the same place that Moses was. And God's word has come to you this morning to give you assurance, to give you encouragement, to give you a greater measure of confidence in him. No, I'm with you. I can perform perform this. That which I promised, I will perform. You don't need to answer, but, but God, let God take care of that stuff. Understand that his call, his commission has within it a promise that he'll fulfill it. Now, in doing this for Moses, God brings an element of the supernaturalness. And I believe that whenever God has us to fulfill the calling that he's given us, whenever he has for us to fulfill the, uh, the, the, the race that he has us to run, there's going to be at least an element of the supernatural in it. So check it out here, starting at verse 2. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and he caught it and became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. I love the question God asked of Moses right there in verse two. What is that in your hand? Moses, what do you have right there in your hand? Well, all I have is a shepherd's staff, the kind of thing that a shepherd carries. I have a rod, something that a shepherd uses from day to day. I've been holding the same staff, the same rod for 40 years, tending sheep in the wilderness. Well, what's in your hand? I'm going to use that, God says. Isn't that wonderful? We often think that God needs to put something else in our hand before we can be used of him. And also think of this, that for 40 years previous to this, Moses believed that he had a staff, or excuse me, a scepter from Egypt in his hand, the scepter of a ruler. 
He was a prince of Egypt. And according to Josephus, he was heir to the throne of Pharaoh. Well, with the scepter in his hand, Moses said, I can do something with this scepter. God says, no, you don't need the scepter. I'll put a staff in your hand and you'll use just a simple stick, a simple rod. What is in your hand? I just ask you to consider for a moment that what God has put in your hand right now can be a key for you to fulfill his calling for your life right at this period of time. What does he put in your hand? Well, maybe he's put a computer keyboard in your hand. And the wise, anointed use of that keyboard will fulfill God's purpose. What does he put in your hand? Maybe he's put some diapers in your hand and the loving care that you have for that family and the children that he's put at your disposal. That, that will fulfill the call that God has in your life, at least in this period in your life. What does he put in your hand? Maybe it's a tool. Maybe it's a skill. Maybe it's a passion. But it's something that God has put very close to you right here, right now. God says you don't need to search all over the earth to find it. It's in your hand now. What is in your hand? And Moses answered back. He said, a rod. That rod, that staff that Moses held in his hand, that staff, that was going to part the Red Sea. That staff that he held in his hand, that was going to hit a rock and see water pour forth. That rock, excuse me, that rod would be raised up over a battle and see victory for Israel run. That rod that he held in his hand, that was going to be called the rod of God itself. So what did he do with it? He threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. Moses jumped back from it, as you or I would. Then God told Moses to do something very special. Did you hear what he said? He told Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. No, I don't know about you, but if I was there, if I was Moses, I wouldn't might have said, no. That's a snake. I'm jumping away from the snake, God. Don't you see I don't want to reach out and take it where? By the tail? Now, I'll confess, I don't have a lot of experience with snake handling. Praise the Lord, I was never raised in that kind of religious environment. So I'm no expert on it. But I will say this, from what little experience I do have with snakes or serpents, the dangerous place to pick them up is at the tail. If you pick up a snake at a tail, it could come around with the mouth and bite you. No, if you're going to pick up a snake, you want to do it somewhere near the head. But God told Moses... Take it up by the tail. And you wonder, Moses, like, really, God? By the tail? But what does he do as soon as he does what God tells him to do, obeying in a small, or I'm sure it didn't seem small at the moment, but in the big scope of Moses' life, it turned out to be small. He picks up that snake by the tail, and it instantly becomes the rod again. Yes, God is teaching Moses something. In fulfilling the call I have on your life, you can trust me. I'll teach you in smaller things and lead you to greater things. What I'm teaching you right now is preparation for what you're going to do in the future. So he's holding on the road. Well, okay, Lord, maybe you're going to do something. But God wasn't finished. Look at verse 6. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, not this, take heed of this first sign, that they may believe in the message of the latter sign. And it shall be that if they do not believe even these first two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. 
God gave Moses basically four messages. The first messages was just the, the voice, just, just what he would say to them, the explanation he'd give. The God of your fathers has sent me to be your deliverer from Egypt. We're going to Canaan. That was the first message, just the actual words he would say. Well, what if they don't believe that? Okay, well, then do the thing with the rod, turn it to a snake and back to a rod again. Well, what if they don't believe that? Okay, well, then do the thing with the magic hand. You know, you put it in and you pull it out. It's leprous. You, you put it in and come back. It's back pure again. Do those two. If they don't believe your word, if they don't believe the staff, if they don't believe the magic hand, then finally take some water of the Nile and put it on the ground and I'll turn it to blood. Friends, I think there's some significance here in these three miracles. Or in the first thing, God says, here's my word, believe it. Okay, well, maybe I want to believe it, maybe I don't. Second, here's something for you to believe. Here's a miracle of transformation. I'm going to take something dangerous like a snake, and it's going to become something good and useful like a staff. Here's a third miracle, or second miracle, I should say, another miracle of transformation. I'm going to take something that is polluted and dangerous like a leprous hand, and it's going to go in next to the heart, and it's going to come out pure. I'm going to transform it into something good. Those first two miracles that God gave Moses were miracles of transformation. And if you don't want to believe God's word, believe his work of transformation. God has done a transforming work in your life. Now, maybe you would tell me, no, he hasn't done a transforming work in, in my life. Well, I'll tell you, he's done a transforming work in my life and in lives all around you. And certainly, we're no better than you. God transforms lives. His work of transformation is a huge evidence, a huge confidence builder for how he works. So first, believe his word. If you won't believe his word, then believe his miracles of transformation. If you won't believe his miracles of transformation, then all that remains is a miracle of judgment. Where water is turned into blood. Is it turned back into water? No. It's just judgment. Now, I, I understand that that may be a heavy word for some of you who are listening here this morning. But I, I just need to bring it to you, frankly. If you won't receive his word... If you won't receive the miracles of transformation, then unfortunately there's the severe work of judgment awaiting you. But God gives you the opportunity. Receive it. Accept it. Here it is right before you now. Well, you would think that those three things would convince Moses. That Moses would say, okay, great, this is perfect. But now, actually, it sort of exposes Moses' heart. Look at it here, verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before you nor since you have spoken to your servant, but, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Lord, I'm not a good talker. I can't speak well. Now, friends, let me just get directly to the point because we want to make our way through the chapter. I don't think Moses was being entirely truthful. Because actually, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, speaking to the Jewish council in Acts chapter 7, said this about Moses. Acts chapter 7, verse 22, he said, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and mighty in words and deeds. At one time, Moses was a great man of eloquence. When he stood before the Egyptians and spoke to them as the prince of Egypt and the heir to the throne, he was a pretty good talker. But I don't have any doubt that probably 40 years in the wilderness of preaching to nothing but sheep has worked all of that out of him. 
and he no longer has confidence in his own ability to speak. Or maybe he's just looking for excuses. I can't tell you exactly which. But the bottom line is this. Whether Moses' estimation of himself was true or whether it was false, whether he had lost the eloquence that he once had or whether he, he just was without any ability here, I'll tell you this and i tell you it with certainty. It didn't really matter because God was more than able to meet the need. This is what he explains in verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind? Have I not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Moses, you come to me and you tell me that you're not eloquent. Who cares? Moses, I'm in the mouth-making business. I know. Do you think it slipped by me, Moses? Oh, well... I ask you to speak, but don't worry. My calling is the enabling. So when God says in verse 11, who made man's mouth, he shows that it was completely beside the point that Moses felt he wasn't eloquent. The God who created the most eloquent mouths that ever existed was on his side. Then he says something pretty interesting here. He says, who's made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing or the blind Have not I the Lord? This was a dramatic statement revealing the sovereignty of God. And God revealed his sovereignty in the context of an invitation to trust him and to do his work. Friends, this is something wonderful about the biblical understanding about God's sovereignty and power is there's never the slightest bit of fatalism in it. It's never like this. God is so mighty that we can't do anything. Never. It's always God is so mighty that he can work even through me if I'll make myself available to him. Matter of fact, the point is emphasized where God says in verse 11 that he makes the mute and the deaf and the blind. Some people think that God was being cruel here, but no, that's not the way to understand it at all. God's point here was not or uh, was not to analyze the origins of weakness or even evil, but to show that God is so mighty that he can even call the mute and the deaf and the blind to do his work. Moses, you say you can't speak? I don't care. I'm in charge of mouths. I can do this. So that was God's assurance to Moses at that time and that place. Notice what he says in verse 12. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Case closed. There's no excuse, Moses. I wonder. I wonder how many here You have a sense that God has called you to something. You have a sense that there's a purpose for your life that's given to you by God. And you have a sense of what that thing is. And you know how you feel? You feel, no way. I can never do it. Can I tell you, the God who called you is able to perform it in your life. The problem is not your ability or your lack of ability. The problem is more so is by faith, making yourself available to God. Because I'll tell you where it really stood with Moses. Where it really stood with Moses was he complained about his lack of ability. But that wasn't the real problem. As verse 13 will show us, Moses' real problem was that he wasn't making himself truly available to God. Look at it right here, verse 13. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Lord, okay, let me just get it. It's not that I'm such a bad talker. It's not my doubts. It's not my fears. God, 
would you please send anybody else except me to do this job? Whoever else, Lord, I don't even care. Moses was done with his excuses, and he gave us a little glimpse into the true state of his fearful heart. He would much rather that God send anybody else. There's a little cliche that we have in Christian circles, and usually I don't like cliches, but you know what? Sometimes they're pretty good, and this is a pretty good little cliche. Here it is. God is not as interested in your ability as he is in your availability. Now, Moses thought the problem was his ability. No, God, I'll take care of it. God says, I'll take care of that. His real problem was that he didn't want to be available. He hung out a sign that says, Lord, I'm not available. Friends, if I could bring any challenge to you this morning, that's the big one I want to make. Are you making yourself available to God to fulfill whatever call, whatever purpose, whatever plan he has for you in this season of your life? Moses was struggling with that very point. God was drawing it out of him. I'll read it again, verse 13. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Look at God's reaction in verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, He is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you what you should do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you. And you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. Did you see that in verse 14? That's pretty heavy, isn't it? So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Moses, in this encounter at the burning bush, asked questions of God. Moses asked, who am I? The questions didn't make God angry. He didn't get angry when God said, when Moses said, "Uh, who shall I say sent me? That didn't make God angry. God wasn't angry when Moses didn't believe God's word. And he says, what if they don't listen to me when I come? God, excuse me, God was not even angry when Moses claimed that that he was not and he had never been eloquent, even though that wasn't entirely true. But you know what made God angry? When Moses put out the I'm not available sign. That made the Lord angry. Ladies and gentlemen, do we not have the obligation to make ourselves available to God? Isn't that just part of what we are as his followers? I'll explain to you this way. You owe it to God for two reasons. First of all, you owe it to God because he created you. Even if you're rejecting Jesus Christ today, you still owe it to him to yield your life to him and to make yourself available for whatever he wants you to do because he made you. But secondly, not only did he create you, he redeemed you. If you're his follower, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if he's made you a new person in him, Well, not only has he created you, he's also redeemed you. Friends, that's like a double barrel power of authority right there saying, yes, Lord, I should be available for whatever you want me to do in my life. Now, for some people, that's the worst news possible because somehow you think that making yourself available for God's call, for God's purpose in your life means torture. 
Like it's as if God has set a trap. And as soon as you say, okay, Lord, whatever you want with my life, great. God says, oh, great, I got them just now. Now I can torture them. Friends, you see, we realize what a twisted view of God that is. You've forgotten how much he loves you. You've forgotten how good he is. You've forgotten how much he cares you. Why don't you open your eyes to that truth and say, yes, Lord, what you want for me is good. There might have been a hundred understandable reasons why Moses was unwilling. And maybe some of them made some sense. Nevertheless, the basic truth that was that Moses was unwilling, not that he was unable. So God says, okay, fine, I'll send Aaron with you and let's get this done. So at the end of verse 17, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro's father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Basically, he went back to his father-in-law and he gave his two-week notice. Sorry, I'm leaving. I have to go. I have to fulfill what God's call is for my life. But friends, I love the first few words of verse 18. Did you see that? It says, so Moses went. Do you understand what that means? It means what? That he went. That he actually came down from Mount Sinai. He left the scene of the burning bush. He left the scene of the dramatic call and work of God in his life and on his heart. And he actually did what God called him to do. Do you want to know why I think that's so remarkable? Because oftentimes we do not. We have a dramatic encounter with God. And I don't know, maybe it's within a church building like this. Maybe it's someplace else. But you have some kind of dramatic experience with God. He speaks to you. He makes his word clear to you. You read it from the Bible and it's like leaping off the page. You, It's so clear. This is what God wants you to do. This is what he wants you to be, at least at this season in your life. The call of God is real. It may as well be a burning bush in front of you. And then what? And then you make it out to the parking lot and it's like nothing ever happened. Isn't this us from time to time? That's why I think these words are so exciting. So Moses went. It didn't just pass. It didn't just fade away. It was real and he went out and he lived it. Goodbye, father-in-law. Goodbye, flocks of Midian. I'm going to go fulfill the call. And then we come to verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons, and he set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Look, far be it from me to suggest that God was being deceptive with Moses. But isn't it kind of interesting? Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, from the burning bush. Goodbye, father-in-law. I'm heading off to Egypt. I'm going to get back, reconnect with my people and lead them out of Egypt. And this is what God says to him. He said, okay, Moses, now that you're in this, now that you made the commitment, now that you quit your job and you're on the way, 
Let me explain to you a little more exactly how hard this is going to be. You're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to show him these amazing signs, and you're going to think that if you can do the thing with the staff turning into a serpent, and if you can do the thing with the magic hand in and out of your clothing, that that should just be enough. No, he's not going to do it. Matter of fact, God says, I'm going to harden his heart, and he's not going to let you guys go easy, but still I'll work it all out. Now, God is preparing Moses, just letting him know that this is going to be a struggle, that he's not in for an easy operation. He's not going to walk into Pharaoh, show him a few signs, and Pharaoh's going to say, okay, that's it, you guys can go. It's going to be a struggle. But nevertheless, some people really um, burden over this part where he says there in verse 21, God says, I will harden his heart. Say, God, you can't do that. You can't harden Pharaoh's heart. We're going to talk more about this in the book of Exodus. But it would be unfair of me to ignore it altogether today. So we'll talk more about it later. Might I touch on it just for a moment here? When you take a look at the biblical text, you'll find that it says this. It says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You'll find that in the passage we looked at right here. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. But you'll also find that it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. And then you'll find it also said in passages like Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened without saying who did it. So how did it happen? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Or did the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart? And the correct answer is yes. Both of them were true. But this is what you have to understand about God's work of hardening Pharaoh's heart. And let me explain it to you by showing you the negative. This is not how it happened. Does everybody have in their mind? This is not how it happened. There's Pharaoh sitting in his palace in Egypt, you know, all the glory of Egypt around him. And here's Pharaoh thinking in his heart on the throne of Egypt, I love the people of Israel, and I really want to bless them and do something good for them. And God says from heaven, No, Pharaoh, I won't let you. Instead, I'm going to harden your heart. Does anybody think that that's how it worked? That God somehow took nice, kind Pharaoh who really wanted to love the people of God and he twisted around and hardened Pharaoh's heart? No! Pharaoh hated the people of Israel and he hated the God of Israel. And God looked down upon Pharaoh's heart and he goes, You want to hate them? Fine, I'll let you hate them. You want to harden your heart against them? I'll harden your heart even more. There's a warning there in for us, is there not? Sometimes when a person pursues a hardened, sinful direction, sometimes the most terrible judgment that God can give to that person is say, fine, you want it, I'll give it to you. You want to harden your heart against them? I'll harden it for you. You want to go and rebel against me? Fine, here's your rebellion. God gave Pharaoh what he wanted when he hardened his heart. He didn't work against the will of Pharaoh. Then we come to verse 24. You got it? Here they are. Moses and his family, they're back on their way to Egypt. And then verse 24 blows up in our face. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Well, thank you very much. Lord, I thought I'm fulfilling your will. I thought I'm doing your purpose here. I'm just bringing my whole family back to Egypt to fulfill this calling. Remember burning bush, all of that stuff. And now you're trying to kill me when I'm on my way to Egypt. What's going on? Well, I don't know if I entirely understand this. I don't know if the biblical record is as clear as we wish it were. But let's read the next couple of verses, verse 25 and 26. 
Then Zipporah, his wife, his Zipporah, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now, friends, can I just say, this is weird. <laughs> let me work it out to you the best that I can understand this. Moses and his wife Zipporah were in disobedience. They knew that as people of the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that their sons should be circumcised. But for whatever reason, they didn't circumcise their sons. And they started to fulfill God's call on their life. They started to go back to Egypt to rally the people of Israel and to bring them back to Canaan. They started to do that. And God said, no, stop. I need to get your attention. Moses and Zipporah, you're in disobedience. Before you can fulfill this call that I have in your life, you better get in obedience. And you better do what I told you to do a long time ago. Now, I have my suspicions. I can't prove it, but I have my suspicions that perhaps the objection came from Zipporah's part. Remember, Zipporah was not an Israelite. She was from Midian. Maybe she thought of circumcision as a barbaric custom. And she said, you're not circumcising my sons. Maybe that's why God engineered it to where she had to do it because Moses was disabled. And so she has to do it. And God says, no, you're going to do it. Or you can't go any further. And ladies and gentlemen, all I can say that if that's a scenario, if that's what's working out in front of us right now, it shows a very important principle that when God has a call on a person's life, that obedience doesn't become less important. Obedience becomes more important. Now I'd say this to anybody who senses a call to ministry or some kind of public ministry like I have. When I read this in my studies this week, it sobered me up. Obedience becomes more important for a person in my position, not less important. And God was calling Moses and his wife Zipporah on this. Well, let's wrap it up here. Verse 30, excuse me, 27. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that they had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Isn't that beautiful? There are the children of Israel in the midst of their afflictions in Egypt. Lord, send your deliverer. Lord, we're afflicted. Lord, help us. And Moses comes and he shows them the signs and he shows them what's going on. And he says, listen, God has called me to be your deliverer. Here I am. Now, friends, the people believed and now they would trust that God would bring deliverance through Moses. What a difference from 40 years before that. Forty years before that, Moses presented himself as a deliverer to God's people. And what did they do? They rejected him. Now they accepted him and God was going to do something. They accepted him because Moses showed them some miracles of transformation. Look at the staff. It's become a snake. Look at this uh, uh, hand. It's become clean after it was leprous. God's transforming power is at work among you. They believed it. And now they were ready to live it. Well, we're going to have to leave it here. And we're going to get into chapter 5 next week. And we'll consider more of what God did to bring Israel out of Egypt. But let me end on this note. I think it's a wonderful point. Israel now accepted their deliverer 
after rejecting him before. I think that this is what each and every one of us need to do. Jesus Christ is our deliverer. I'm happy to present before you someone greater than Moses. Someone who can deliver us and fulfill God's call in our life. And maybe you've rejected him before, or maybe at the very least in some way in your life, you're pushing him away. Now's the time to accept him, especially in light of his miracles of transformation. Jesus Christ transforms lives. He's right here in our presence, right here in our midst. Would you stop rejecting him as Israel rejected Moses the first time? And now believe on him and open up your heart to receive it. We really come to a great Sunday morning for me to end on this theme because in just a few moments, Keith Fortenberry from our Bible college is going to come up and he's going to lead us in recognition of Jesus' great sacrifice for us by leading us in communion. We're going to come to the Lord's table together. But would you do it with that kind of heart? Say, Lord, no longer am I going to reject you. No longer am I going to push you away. I accept. I receive. Father, that's my prayer for us together this morning. That we would. That in whatever ways, small or great, that we may have been resisting you or pushing away your call, your influence, your great work for us. Lord, we're just here to say this morning, we give up. We believe your work of transformation. You've done something greater in us than a cure from leprosy or the transformation of a snake into a rod. You've done something in us, Lord, to bring us from death to life, from bondage to liberty, from stained to being pure. Make that real in individual lives and prepare us to receive from your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.